0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: Today you'll hear another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend in Chester. In today's lecture, you'll hear from Chris Harding. Chris is a Senior Lecturer in Asian History at the University of Edinburgh, and he's also the author of Japan's Story, In Search of a Nation, and more recently, The Japanese, A History in 20 Lives. In this talk, he charts the turbulent history of Japan's relationship with the West.
3: Hello, thank you very much for the um, introduction. Um, I thought before we got going, I might ask how many people here have been to Japan already? Gosh, right, okay. Um, And how many have, my dad loves to say this, have a yen to go to Japan at some point? Okay. Um, But one of the themes with Japan and the West that I wanted to address with you today is the idea of Westerners as barbarians. So if you want to understand Japanese history, we often tell our, our students, the place to start is China because so much of Japan's uh, thinking about the world comes originally from China many centuries ago, whether it's um, an emperor, calendar, architecture, religion, food, laws, all sorts of things. And one of those things is the idea that China is at the centre of the world and that there is a sort of various concentric circles of barbarity out there. Other peoples who will pay a certain amount of tribute, but who are also uh, very dangerous. a cause for a certain amount of uh, anxiety, kind of culturally threatening um, at the same time. And I think Japan's view often of first of Europe and then later of the West generally, particularly the United States, has had that kind of tinge of um, uncertainty, the kind of sense of a, uh, of a barbaric sphere out there, people who don't necessarily understand um, Japan very well. Those of you who've been there, who've spent any amount of time there, um, I don't encounter many people who literally talk about westerners barbarians anymore but there is a sense of westerners perhaps not always understanding or respecting what goes on in japan so i spent a fair amount of time out there one of the things i picked up is that um, there's a certain assumed cultural superiority about the west in japan a sense of um the japanese not yet quite having caught up to how the world ought to work whether it's Full democracy, individualism, um, rights for women, um, all sorts of things that the West don't, we don't tend to see as being elements of our own culture. We see them as being more uh, universal and that it's a case of Japan not quite being up to those standards yet. Funnily enough, I think we're starting to see it even now, um, last year, this year, possibly next year with the Olympics as well, as more and more Westerners become tourists in Japan Places like Kyoto, the home famously of high culture uh, in Japan, some of the owners of tourist spots in Kyoto are starting to get quite annoyed because foreigners coming in don't necessarily know how to behave. The tone starts to change, the atmosphere starts to change. Um, And again, there's that kind of hint of the the barbarian coming in. Even if it's something like being on a train in Japan and and eating or or talking too loud or queuing the wrong way on a train platform, there are still these senses in which um, Westerners are potentially a a nuisance or a slightly uh, threatening presence. So that, I think, um, although I wouldn't want to overplay it in the present day, I think that's a theme that you can actually read back quite a long way in Japanese history. So although we're starting at the birth of the nation uh, in 1868, and I'll come to that quite soon, I actually wanted to begin, and we can still do it, I think, in in 45 minutes, um, 300 years before 1868 with uh, this man. This is Oda Nobunaga. There was a survey a few years ago of Japanese people's favourite characters from their own history, and he's number one. So Oda Nobunaga around in the late 1500s, second half of the 1500s. Those of you who know a little bit about this earlier part of Japanese history will be aware of this. For a couple of hundred years, um, second half of the 1300s into the first half of the 1500s um, was what the Japanese call the Warring States period. So Japan is split into different fiefs Um, ruled by different feudal lords with their own samurai retainers and there's almost constant warfare, people vying um, for territory. Oda Nobunaga is one of the first of three great unifiers in Japan. They come one after the other and they're credited with starting to bring the country um, together. By no means was he um, a great diplomat, he was bringing the country together by means of um, lots and lots of warfare. And in particular what Oda Nobunaga is famous for, and the reason he gets us to our first link with the West, uh, is this, which is the use of firearms. So under Oda Nobunaga, battle scenes like this start to look different and they start to sound different and the body count starts to go up by quite a way. Because the old style um, warfare, samurai warfare in Japan around this time... The most important people on the the battlefield were the samurai themselves on horseback, using bow and arrow, uh, sometimes sword and spear as well. They also had ashigaru, which are foot soldiers, kind of commoners who would um, come in often with kind of long spears, but they weren't considered to be all that important in a battle. They often weren't even given uh, their own armor. They were considered to be pretty expendable. And the samurai would always want to fight at a certain distance from them because they were, um, in military terms, they were low life. But with the advent of these firearms, it starts to change considerably in Japan. Because whereas it takes quite a long time to learn how to use a bow and arrow well, and it takes a long time to learn how to use a sword well, you can train someone to use uh, a musket very, very quickly. And so what Oda Nobunaga did was he used to have hundreds and hundreds of uh, musketeers firing in rotating ranks, and you could have a fine cavalry charge um, of samurai be cut down very, very quickly by these sorts of weapons. And samurai start to go out looking for new sorts of armor which has already got a certain amount of um, bullet indentation in it, because then you can prove that that armor is bulletproof. So that kind of armor, it may look terrible and shabby, but if it's proven that it can stop a bullet, suddenly uh, samurai wants to know about it. And the reason this gets us to Europe, of course, is that these firearms come into Japan from Portugal. The first Europeans to set foot in Japan do so in the 1540s, and they bring with them uh, these weapons. It's the first Japanese experience um, face-to-face with Europeans. And the three great unifiers of Japan, I said these are the three, the three that all Japanese children will learn about at school, they all have to work out what kind of relationship they want to have with Europeans, uh, what kind of relationship they want to have with the West. So these are the three. Um, I won't talk too much um, about each one because I want to get to 1868 um, fairly quickly. But the way, there are two ways that um, Japanese children learn about them at school, which I think is quite useful for us as well. First one is um, what to do with a bird that refuses to sing. And they said each one of these men would have had a different approach and it tells you a lot about what they were like. Hideyoshi Toyotomi um, is known as a sort of canny strategist. He would have found a way to charm the bird, to persuade it into singing. Tokugawa Ieyasu would have played the long, clever game. He would have waited to see what the bird's next move might be and adapt himself accordingly. Um, Oda Nobunaga would have had the bird killed. That was his general approach um, in uh, in battle as well. It's it's odd that he became the the most popular Japanese figure in history given the body count thanks to his reign. He was utterly merciless. Um, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, including civilians, um, were murdered during his reign, partly thanks to his contacts uh, with the Europeans, but he finds himself in an act of treachery killed in 1582 before this job of unifying Japan um, is fully over. Hideyoshi Toyotomi then and Tokugawa Ieyasu um, comes in at the end to complete the job. And to- Tokugawa Ieyasu, his surname Tokugawa will be familiar to many of you because he creates the shogunate, which lasts all the way down until the Europeans arrive, as it were, again and en masse. Uh, in the middle of the 1800s, and we'll get to them in a minute. So, that second phrase that the Japanese children learn as a result is that Odo Nobunaga pounded the rice for the rice cake, Hideyoshi Toyotomi baked it, and Tokugawa Ieyasu ate it because he was the one, after everyone else's hard work, uh, who got to enjoy what they'd done. But as I say, all three of them had to work out what to do with Europeans once they were there. And to give you a sense of um, the situation they found themselves in, um, to show you, a matter of fact, I'll show you a close-up of Japan first. As, again, some of you will already know this, but it's just useful to know the names of these places. So this is um, Honshu, the main island of Japan. This is uh, Kyushu down here. It's only those two that I quickly want to talk about on the basis of this larger map. So the Portuguese, uh, by the middle of the 1500s, they are beginning to get their African and Asian empire together. But basically around here, Portuguese have various trading bases and they are dealing with the Japanese in Kyushu. That's where the firearms start to come in. So for someone like Oda Nobunaga and Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the Portuguese are quite useful. The weapons are good, although the Japanese replicate them quite quickly and don't necessarily need the Portuguese anymore. But the Portuguese bring in valuable goods from China and from Southeast Asia, or a few things from Europe um, as well, and a certain amount of money can be made as a result. So weapons are good, uh, trade is good. There's even a certain amount of interest in Portuguese fashion. There's a Japanese man here enjoying the kind of baggy uh, pantaloons uh, of the Portuguese. But what the Portuguese also, of course, bring in is... Christianity. Um, And this is something that the Japanese have a much bigger problem with. There isn't a feeling that Christianity is unacceptable in philosophical terms or unacceptable theologically. Uh, Japan isn't anti-Christian in that sense. It's much more a law and order issue and a politics issue. I'm going to go back to our three main people here. Hideyoshi Toyotomi, when he starts to try and bring the country together, building on Oda Nobunaga, he gets down to Kyushu and he finds that a huge number of people have converted to Christianity there, including really influential feudal lords. When people convert, he finds them smashing up Buddhist temples, smashing up Shinto shrines. And some of these um, feudal lords, their loyalties, it isn't quite clear where they lie. Um, do they lie with the Portuguese? Do they lie uh, with the Pope? Is there some higher authority, basically, than Toyotomi Hideyoshi? And he's a famously vain man. I don't think he could stand the idea uh, that there might be. And so famously, he crucifies 26 Christians um, in Nagasaki. Tokuga so and he takes over as well. The Christianity problem um, continues continues to be something that he worries about. And he has a very interesting worry about Christianity um, in terms of what it says about European culture. He says, you know, in Japan, someone who has a remarkable life, who achieves remarkable things, may end up after death becoming a god. And Tokugawa Ieyasu is uh, regarded as a god after his death. Uh, Hideyoshi Toyotomi is regarded as a god after his death. And so Tokugawa uh, destroys the shrine to Hideyoshi because he, he doesn't want that. But Christianity seems to be quite different. Now and again, in the early years of Tokugawa Ieyasu's reign as shogun, he sets up his shogunate uh, in 1603. He finds he has to execute some Christians here and there for various crimes. But he then hears that the people who've been executed are being venerated by the Christians who remain. Um, and he finds that basically uh, disgusting. He says, here you've got a religion whose adherents will worship legitimately executed criminals and whose religion actually centers on someone who 2,000, at this point 1,600 or so years ago, um, was convicted uh, by local authorities and executed by them. This person is a low-down criminal and yet he is Jesus Christ uh, at the center of these people's religion. So he starts to find the Christian presence for all sorts of reasons um, unacceptable and some of the politics that Jesuit missionaries in particular are getting involved with in Japan, politically speaking, he can't stand that either. And so Japan enters in the 1630s, what's called the Sakoku period, this period of being closed off to the West for the sake of Japan's national security, basically. Only one group of people uh, become acceptable Westerners in Japan, um, and they are the Dutch. And I'll show you here. So down in Kyushu in Nagasaki, The Japanese build, originally for the Portuguese, then they give it to the Dutch. This island here, some of you may have visited this, if you go to Nagasaki, it's been restored and it's still there, um, called Dejima. A tiny artificial island, you can see how small it is because of the size uh, of the houses. The Portuguese, being um, non-Catholics, being Protestant and only interested in trade, the Japanese find them acceptable and non-threatening Westerners to deal with. But they aren't all that interested in the Dutch. They only want to meet them uh, roughly every year, roughly every two years. The Dutch are there for, what, more than 200 years, and to be honest, neither the Dutch nor the Japanese in this period come out looking um, very good. The Dutch have this chance across 200 years to explore a culture which the rest of Europe knows surprisingly little about because Japan deliberately closes itself off to such a large extent. They could be exploring the religion. They could be exploring its people. They could be exploring its nature. They are technically confined to this island, and that stone bridge there, which links across to mainland Nagasaki, is guarded 24 hours a day. But there are Japanese interpreters who speak Dutch. There's a lot they could be finding out about the country and reporting back to Europe. And instead, they spend their time playing billiards. And they spend their time playing racquetball and occasionally having um, courtesans visit them from the Nagasaki uh, pleasure quarters. And the Japanese are actually quite similar. And it kind of comes back to this theme at the beginning of seeing peripheral peoples. In the Japanese case, the Chinese, of course, are the major exception. But seeing peripheral peoples as being um, threatening, necessarily um, Uh, barbaric people who you need to try to control quite carefully. The Japanese officially call the Portuguese Nambang, which means they're southern barbarians. Um, And the Dutch are regarded as sort of barbaric in their own right. So the Dutch make a trip every year from Nagasaki to the shogun's capital, which is Edo, which is now Tokyo, um, just to pay respects and to give gifts. And they also give them um, a report of what's been going on in the rest of the world during that year. It's kind of a digest uh, of the international news. And these were found uh, a few decades ago in really, really good condition still. Not because they'd been treated with great respect as valuable documents, but because very few people have bothered to read them in Japan, because it wasn't considered that they were all that interesting. Instead, we have reports of the Dutch approaching the shogun's court in Edo, being asked to take their coats off and then put them on again, and to hug each other, and to kiss each other, and to dance, and to sing, and to show them their famous goblin-like red hair, because they were more a curiosity than necessarily a source um, of valuable information uh, about the outside world. So across this period, the 1600s, 1700s, much of the early 1800s, um, Japanese interest in Europe is relatively limited. There are a few people uh, in Nagasaki especially who become really interested in um, Dutch medicine and in Dutch science. You have these famous stories of a few pioneering Japanese doctors who wanted to learn about Western um, anatomy and they would go to execution grounds because in Japan the idea of dissecting, and the same thing in China, the idea of um, most people dissecting a human body was disgusting. It's something that you simply wouldn't do. Um, But people right at the bottom of Japan's class system now and again would do it. On the bodies of executed criminals, so that they could collect bits of the insides, including bile, which were used in medicine. So, you get pioneering Japanese doctors who would go to execution grounds um, and they would watch while a body, a decapitated body, was basically opened up. Um, and they would almost have their kind of Chinese medicine text here and their Dutch or German anatomical text here, which had come in via Dejima, and they would say, right, the Europeans know what's inside a body, and the Chinese texts appear to be out of date. And so via those sorts of means, they would start to get a sense of um, usefulness in the West, usefulness of European knowledge, but still it was kind of a trickle uh, for most of this period. And that's the background to what happens in 1853, which is the appearance Of these. This is a Japanese woodblock print marking a major and terrifying event in 1853, which is uh, the arrival of the Americans off Japanese shores. To give you uh, an idea where that comes from, the Americans, uh, for those of you who are into your American history, had not long finished their sweep from the east coast of America, pushing uh, their frontiers all the way to California. And from there, from uh, the west coast of California to Japan was only about an 18-day trip uh, on a steamship. So in 1853, Commodore Matthew C. Perry is sent by the president, actually he goes the other way around the world, but still sent by his president to Japan to basically say we are only 18 days away from you now, Um, we should trade uh, and we should be friends. And as the Japanese remember it, they were effectively invited into a friendship and a trading friendship by four um, of the most terrifying ships they had ever seen. Um, Steam power, something unknown in Japan. Um, A level of weapons technology, simply unknown in Japan. When the Americans uh, land a party on the uh, coast in Japan in the summer of 1853 to basically greet the Japanese and deliver these letters and try to get a trading relationship going, some of the samurai who come out to meet them and are standing on the cliffs overlooking the beach where Commodore Matthew C. Perry and his people come aboard. Um, They're holding muskets, which in America would be in a museum because they're a couple of hundred years or so out of date. Some of them aren't even loaded uh, because they don't have ammunition for them anymore. In some ways, that's a good thing. Japan has had 250 years of peace. You know, weapons technology grows fastest, obviously, during times of conflict. So in a way, that's nice for Japan. But the shock of the West in 1853 um, is absolutely enormous. And I love this image because you can see these ships are are coated in black pitch. They become known as the Kurofune, the black ships, and they are seen as a kind of portent of evil things um, to come. And this is a Japanese artist's take on Matthew C. Perry here in the kind of famously a barbaric pose with the kind of long, misshapen nose, the scary features, um, the sheer hairiness of him. It's the hairiness of Westerners that seems to get people in Japan across centuries. The Dutch are known as the red hairs. Um, Some Japanese mothers will terrify their children by saying, if you don't behave, a Dutchman is going to come and get you, or I will give you away to a Dutchman. Um, And these same sort of features now apply um, to uh, to the West. And so Japan, between 1853 and 1868, this great moment that I want to talk about in a moment, they basically have to decide, it's a huge moment, it's sort of Brexit times a thousand for them, what is the attitude we take to the outside world now? Do we try and fight these people off? Do we welcome them in? Um, And for a while it gets rather violent, there's all these propaganda images get put out. This is a sumo wrestler famously uh, tumbling a foreigner to the ground. Um, the politics gets very violent in Japan for about sort of, 13 or 14 years. And finally, in 1868, a group of people managed to win out. They're basically lower-ranking samurai who managed to gather a modernised, a westernised force and get hold of the young emperor and effectively launch a palace coup. And so you have... Let me get you back to a map. You have, actually, I'll get you back to the larger map. You have a war that gets going in Japan that starts off around the center of Honshu and they push the old shogunate forces all the way up Japan right to what we now call Hokkaido here and they finally wipe them out. And in 1868, these are the new people who come to power in Japan. But the big question they have is... What kind of relationship do we want to have with the modern West? What kind of a country do we want to be? And it's not really solved in 1868. And there are sort of two phases I think they go through. I'll talk about both of those and um, then briefly bring it up to date towards the end. I think you could say that um, in the late 1860s and the 1870s, there's a real wide open embrace in Japan of what the West might be able to offer. This is an era where um, slogans are really important. And there are two or three, which I think really get to the heart of what um, Japan's new leaders are thinking about in 1868. The first one is Fukoku Kyohei, which is um, enrich the country, strengthen the military. Basically, if Japan is not going to go down the road that China has gone down in the opium wars, then they need to be wealthy enough through trade, build up their weapons, build up their military, and keep the West at bay. Otherwise, they are essentially next on colonialism's to-do list in Asia. Um, That's the slogan on which more or less everyone can agree. Second slogan is civilization and enlightenment. So one of their thinkers, very famously, he's on one of the uh, banknotes in Japan, Fukuzawa Yukichi, says that he's been to the United States and he's been to Europe, travelled there in the 1860s, he comes back to Japan and he says, you know what, as Japanese, we have nothing to be proud of except for our scenery. In more or less every other way, the West has somehow um, ended up ahead of us. And amongst people like him, there is a kind of a blame game that gets going. He says, how is it that Westerners have ended up um, so far ahead of us that their technology appears to us to be magical? that they've got steamships and telegraphs and gaslighting. They have these incredible ships. They dominate global trade. They dominate the globe militarily. They are picking out colonies here, there, and everywhere in these years. One of the things he says is that it's um, the old Confucianists who he talks about as being rice-consuming dictionaries. They don't really have that kind of go-getter exploratory spirit that we need to have. Other people think that it's Buddhism because they've been peddling cosmological lies about the world. We need to get rid of the Buddhists, and there's lots of violence against Buddhism as well in the 1870s. But what Fukuzawa Yukichi says is that what we want is civilization. And what Japan really struggles to do in the 1870s and 1880s is to make a differentiation between civilization in some general universal way and simply turning itself into a version of a Western country.
2: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com/slash History Extra.
3: Three great words: free fries Friday, especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with one dollar minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through twelve thirty one twenty four. Excludes tax, must up rewards. And so, in the eighteen seventies, it kind of goes all out towards embracing the West in every way that you can um, imagine. So you have people saying um, that we should ditch the Japanese language. We should all speak English in Japan or if we keep the Japanese language, we should do away with kanji, our writing system, and we should write it using the Roman alphabet instead. Some people think the secret of Western success must be eating meat and eating beef especially. And so loads of people start to eat beef, first in the military and later uh, in Japan. If you go to Japan now, you can have beef cooked in, in miso and all these wonderful flavors. This all starts in the 1870s, possibly as a way of building up stronger Japanese bodies. Even the first Japanese ambassador to the United States in, I think, 1872, talking to Japanese students who've gone to New York on a kind of study trip to learn about how America does business, he said to them, you know what? When you finish studying, go out and meet some American women. Meet them, bring them back to Japan, marry them and have a family, and we can get American blood into the Japanese system. Again, as part of our build-up of a modern country. Because they think it's not enough just to have... Western-style weapons and technology and a banking system and a financial infrastructure. There's something deeper about the West that we try, if we can try to get hold of ourselves, then we can basically fast-track our progress um, in the modern world. And this goes on across lots of the the 1870s, even to the point where people don't want to do Japanese poetry anymore. They say Japanese poetry in the past was wonderful, but now it's bred sort of effeminate people. And so we should do away with poetry, and we should have we should have kind of narrative texts that are a little bit more martial and purposeful and basically a little bit more like the West. And one of the turning points for this idea of how to deal with the West, I think, is um, the building that you see here. This is a building called the Rokumeikan, which was built in the early 1880s, where the Japanese elite could basically dress up in European-style finery um, and dance the night away with um, the elites of Europe and the United States. Because the Japanese really, in this period, when it comes to relationships with the West, they want to do two things. They want to build Japan up so that it can compete with the West, but they also want to achieve some kind of respect uh, in Western eyes. This is a really big priority for them because they want to have new treaties with the West that are a little bit more advantageous to Japan than the ones they were forced to sign by those first Westerners who appeared uh, in the 1850s. And they think this might be the way to do it, And this becomes a turning point because in the Japanese press, critics start to say, you know what, if you went to a soiree like this and you saw Japanese basically dressing up like Europeans, smoking like Europeans, drinking like Europeans, trying to dance like Europeans, trying to speak like Europeans, it's basically embarrassing. You know, this is a country with hundreds and hundreds of years of history. People in Japan know their history really well. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, we are turning ourselves basically into a facsimile of the West. um, And it's a national embarrassment. And there's a huge outcry in Japan saying, actually, we need to change course. We need to try to do something different. And so instead, in the 1880s, the Japanese start to take a very different approach uh, to dealing with the West. They start to say, actually, you know what? When we have our constitution, we'll do things differently. When we have our civil code, we'll do things differently. And so the Japanese instead... They have their own mix, in the end, of Japanese history and Western history. This is the constitution uh, being uh, promulgated in 1889, and it's a mixture of the two in the end. They say one of the things we don't need from the West is British or French-style democracy. Instead, we can have political power in Japan that comes from the emperor who's a figure in in Japan going back into mythological time, as far as Japanese of this period um, are concerned, he will hold all the power uh, himself. And people's role is basically to try to strive in whatever job they have in their professional lives, in their family lives, to build up the nation um, for the sake of the emperor. And there's a, a loose parallel I think you can make between Japan, the settlement that they achieve in their dealings with the West, in the 1880s, and what has happened in China over the last few decades, which is that um, when you're trying to borrow and adapt, especially from uh, the West, it's possible to do it in a way that brings in technology, that brings in Western uh, trading ideas, commerce, um, finance, without necessarily taking on Western ideas about um, individualism and liberalism and democracy. The Japanese in this era quite successfully turned their back on most of that, at least the leadership of Japan did, and they managed to flourish without some of those things that uh, advocates in Japan really wanted to have. They wanted to have a British-style um, uh, parliament, British-style democracy, etc. Japan managed to do actually quite well without it. And so a few stepping stones from there to now to give you a sense of how that worked out from Japan, from this moment of working out what combination of Japan's history and um, the West they could safely put together. Um, It all goes rather well for Japan for a little while after this. 1894 to 95, they achieve a military victory over China, which for the Japanese is psychologically enormous because China for centuries has been the country Japan looked up to um, culturally and politically. And so to actually defeat China in war um, would have been unthinkable just a few decades before. 10 years later, in 1905, the Japanese defeat the Russians um, in war, the first Asian nation to defeat uh, a Western one um, in battle. And that puts Japan really suddenly uh, at the top table um, of world politics. And it starts to look as though their model actually has worked out rather well. Um, What I don't want to do is is go through the next few decades, because I want to come back to where we are now and roughly what uh, the future might be, although historians, we try and sort of stay clear of that kind of thing if we can, but a few words on it in a minute. Um, But what's really interesting is when Japan, after this period, as we all know, Japan um, goes through, in the end, its uh, dark valley, as uh, the Japanese have called it, where basically this settlement here, the constitutional settlement that it's made, turns out not to have been so robust after all, for various reasons, which in the Q&A we could perhaps talk about if you wanted to. Um, But in 1945, once the Second World War is over and the Americans come in, they had to do this fascinating thing of working out what it is about the 1868 moment that went wrong. They find themselves... I suppose, really, actually, within a few months after Pearl Harbour, they find themselves starting to plan already for an occupation of Japan. And aside from the practical planning, a few of them turn themselves into amateur historians, saying, what was it that went wrong in 1868? Their version of it um, ends up being that Japan's modernization, Japan's contact with the West was, in the end, the wrong mix. So you ended up with a country that had um, Western levels of wealth, Western levels of technological achievement, uh, Western weaponry, that almost on the outside looked like a Western country. And as far as the Americans were concerned, looked like a civilized country. Um, But on the inside, Japan hadn't really bought in. So what you ended up with was a a, a people, as the Americans in 1945 saw it, a people who, on the outside, looked, in their words, civilized. On the inside, who were still quite feudal. Part of the reason they took that view was because of what the Imperial Japanese Army was doing on the battlefield that to them looked uh, barbaric, to use that word again. But it also looked like there was a mismatch between the inside of Japan and what Japan looked looked like from the outside. And so America's role as they saw it was to kind of revisit the 1868 moment and build Japan up along new lines. And one of the ways that um, Japanese think about their history since 1945 is that it was a chance to begin again, to go back to 1868 and do things slightly differently. It wasn't an entirely American view um, of 1868 because there were plenty of Japanese intellectuals who said, why didn't anyone in the late 30s and early 1940s, why didn't anyone in government stand up and say what we're doing is wrong? going into Manchuria, going into China, going into Southeast Asia, starting a war that surely we knew we couldn't win uh, against the West. Why did, why did no one stand up or not enough people stand up and say that that was not a good idea? And so one of their great political scientists after the war says it's because that element we didn't manage to take, not necessarily um, from the West, we didn't manage to realise it in ourselves of what they called individual responsibility, that that was the kind of Japanese Failing, and so after the war, this is something that Japanese intellectuals try to get uh, right, try to build Japan up in a different way with a different sort of mentality. And what's been interesting about it, what I think gets us um, in a moment to the present day, um, is that in Japan, and those of, like I think it's more or less half of you that have been to Japan, you have your own views on this. Um, there are those in Japan who I think have mixed feelings about whether that was something to aim for and whether it's been successful or not. So critics, um, Japanese critics of Japanese culture and politics now would say that that 1945 moment of revisiting 1868 in the end was squandered. Uh, It didn't go the way we wanted. You know, if you look at uh, some elements of Japanese history since then, the length of time that the Americans stayed around, and they're still there now, famously a military presence in parts of Japan. Japan hasn't really had an independent foreign policy in the world because of its close relationship with America. In order to become an economic superpower, which Japan did by the middle of the 1960s, um, sacrifices have been made in terms of people's uh, freedom, in terms of the enjoyment that young people might have at school, because they're thinking of the next thing, the exams and the career track and all the rest of it, the sorts of pressures that people end up being under to build the country after 1945, in many ways, the extreme Japanese critics would say, um, resembles what happened after 1868 to quite a large degree. Japan's politics is much freer. Women get the vote after the Second World War. It's a fully democratic country. But the power of Japan's media to mainstream media, to create a consensus in Japan, to still persuade people that there are right and wrong ways of thinking, right and wrong attitudes to take to the country. There is still that sense of Japan being a consensus culture, which some in Japan would regard as being not what 1945 should have been about. I suppose from the other side of it, very briefly, there are those in Japan who would say that some of the Western institutions that get launched after 1945, from the United Nations and all the others, that portray themselves as being global, portray themselves as being international, in fact, enshrine Western values. They enshrine the values of the people who won the war. And so Japanese will constantly say, we feel like we're whether it's wailing whether it's or whether it's the way that we remember or don't remember the Second World War, we constantly feel as though we are being told by the West what to do, as though we're seen as a catch-up, country still, even though we're wealthy, we're an economic superpower, a cultural superpower in the 1990s, you know, manga, anime, Haruki Murakami, all the rest of it, there is still this patronizing edge to Westerners when they're in Japan that really has been there since the middle of the 1500s, was really big in Japan in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and is still to some extent there now, and it still vexes Relationships um, between the two countries. I think you've only got to go online to a website like Gaijin Pot, um, which is this blog site for foreigners in Japan, and you'll see it all the time. I think it still goes on. In terms of where Japan might see itself now, in terms of its relationship with the Western world, at the end of this period, uh, because we started what in the mid 1500s to come to where we roughly are now, or where. The Japanese leadership would like to think they are now, especially thinking forward to the Olympics next year, how Japan might portray itself at the Olympics. Um, I would say what they're after, what the Japanese Prime Minister is after, is putting Japan forward. I suppose is moving on from having been an economic superpower in the 1960s, a cultural superpower from the 1990s, to now being a kind of, if they can, a political superpower. It's always been difficult for Japan to assert itself internationally because of the memories of the late 1930s and the early 1940s. Now, I think Japan's leadership feel that the time might be right for that to change. What's really interesting is Japan's Prime Minister um, Shinzo Abe, his um, advisers around him just a few years ago, their governing slogan was one that comes from after 1868, for Enrich the Country, Strengthen the Military. Some of us in the circle said, actually, that should be what we're trying to do. Get the economy back on track. But also, we shouldn't be as shy as we have been in the past about um, throwing our weight around a little bit in terms of foreign policy, responsibly deploying our military. Still a very, very difficult thing to do in Japan. But this is their direction of travel. I think the feeling is in Japan, if you think about who has influence in East Asia under President Obama, under President Trump, the Americans seem to the Japanese leadership to be pulling back slightly um, from their involvement in the Pacific. Um, Either pulling back or certainly unreliable in terms of their historical support for Japan. The second, of course, being China. Japan has excellent trading relationships with China, but doesn't entirely trust what might happen in Chinese politics uh, in the next little while. Given that situation, The aim for Japan now, their image in the world, and I think you'll see it at the Olympics next year, is to be a peaceful uh, and responsible global player um, and a leader in East Asia. If possible, in partnership with the Chinese, that would be the dream. Um, If not, then by themselves. But to try and move on from some of the difficulties I've been talking about in the last 40 minutes or so um, and really establish Japan as confident and peaceful in East Asia. Thank you very much.
0: That was Chris Harding. His books, Japan's Story in Search of a Nation, and more recently, The Japanese, A History in 20 Lives, are both available now, published by Alan Lane. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events.